How can we better educate young people about the future and the planet? How can we address eco-anxiety while providing students with climate optimism, hope, and solutions? Bryce Kuhn is the Director of Education at EarthDay.org, a nonprofit that champions climate education for all students and is the global driving force behind Earth Day. Previously, Kuhn was a high school teacher for 11 years in Montgomery County, teaching economics and leading a variety of projects for students, such as a school-wide tutoring program. Bryce Kuhn, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me. So you're now a Director of Educational Initiatives at Earth Day, but it's a long path there. You were, for a number of years, a high school teacher. Tell us about that journey. Sure. Yeah, I was I taught high school social studies for 11 years. And during that time, just became very passionate about the environment and the climate crisis from talking to that for my students. And yeah, recently transitioned to this role. I mean, a number of the things that you are addressing, you know, a lot of climate anxiety. Now, I believe a focus is to give students the, the solutions so that they don't experience the anxiety and they can move forward in a positive way. Yeah. If you talk to a young person about the climate crisis, they tend to have one of two responses. They either you know, feel like we're not doing enough and they're advocating for more and they're asking for their teachers to talk more about the climate crisis and you know, why aren't we doing anything? And then the other response, and this is, I saw this more commonly, is that students would just shut down and they wouldn't want to talk about it or they would feel like there was nothing we can do. You know, it used to be the conversation was if we don't do something soon, it'll be too late. And a lot of young people have the mindset now of it is too late. So let's not worry about it. Let's not talk about it. Both of those responses, I believe, are rooted in climate anxiety. So it's the same. It's the same cause. It's just two different responses to it. And I believe that introducing climate education is key to addressing that climate anxiety and providing students with climate optimism, hope, solutions. Yeah, I think that's really important. Facts are good, but making those connections and opening minds and offering those solutions is better because I don't think that we can fix something if we can't talk about it. But again, always in that positive way so that young people can see that the words are resulting in actions. And I know we've been slow to make climate awareness and education mandatory for graduating from high school. Could you describe your different climate education toolkits aimed at students at all levels? Yeah, so we provide materials for teachers to give to their students to guide them in what this climate education can look for. In my role, I do more of the advocating than the developing of the materials. But the reason that we have those materials is because if we're asking teachers to do this and we're advocating for states to introduce climate education or climate change education, then we need to do the next step, which is to show them what it looks like. So the, the purpose of the toolkits is to show the different ways that we can introduce this to students and to have that degree of optimism. Yeah. So this year you're focusing on plastics, of course, with um, removing plastics from the cafeterias. For sure. So I think just like anything, if you're going to solve a problem, you need to know what the problem is. You need to be aware of the problem. And so the role of education in ending plastics or moving away from plastics is to teach young people about all the concerns around plastics. I've learned so much about plastics over the last year from our director of the End Plastics campaign. And, you know, 70% of Americans don't know that plastic come from petroleum. So that's all Americans. That's including adults. So we want to make sure that we're making people aware of that. And then you've probably heard the statistic that we eat up to a credit card worth of microplastics every week. So when you give people that information, they become more focused on, on looking for those solutions. Indeed. And the enormity of it, even if we can reduce it by a little bit, as you know, over 400 million tons of plastic are produced every year for use in various applications, but at least 14 million tons of plastic end up in the ocean every year. So this year being it's devoted to plastic at Earth Day, how are you combating that? 
Yeah, like I said, it's raising that that awareness. So when you provide that information, it makes people want to do something about it. We are also teaching about the different ways that plastics come into our lives. So we had a lesson in the beginning of the year teaching about fast fashion. And, you know, a lot of those garments have plastic in them. Again, just teaching about the recycling process. I mean, recycling for aluminum and glass is, is very effective. But when we talk about plastics, it's fewer than 10% of plastics are being recycled. So... You know, previous to, you know, me having that knowledge, if I had a plastic water bottle and I went to the small extra step of putting it in the recycling bin over the trash bin, I felt like I was doing my part. And obviously that's not the case for plastics because that doesn't mean that is actually going to be recycled. So just providing students with that information and then trying to find ways for them to advocate for more of this type of education in their communities. So ways that they can ask their teachers to increase the amount of climate education that they are receiving or working on a campaign where teachers and students and parents can reach out to their state superintendent to ask for more climate education, to be aware of what these problems are, but also to explore what the solutions are going to be. Indeed. And sometimes we feel that we're making an ethical purchase, say we're purchasing things that aren't made with animal fibers, but then indeed they're made with a kind of plastic that doesn't get recycled. So there, there is an element of eventually a kind of degrowth. We have to reduce our consumption because otherwise it's going into these landfills unless we you know, improve our recycling systems. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, just raising the awareness of that and, and trying to have people make more thoughtful choices, like you just said. So what are some of the planned Earth Day events that are of particular interest. Yeah, we specifically are releasing a Earth Month calendar with some of our partners, including NEA, that will be going out and will have daily activities for teachers and students. So that's kind of exciting. And so you've highlighted the lack of time and politicization of the climate education as major barriers. So in your experience, what strategies have proven effective in overcoming these obstacles, especially in those regions where climate denialism is prevalent? Yeah, that's a great question. And so we advocate for climate education at both the international and the national level. So within the United States, it is tricky and, you know, education is very decentralized. So every state develops their own educational standards. And I guess I would say just in general, one nice thing is that we have success stories to look for. New Jersey would be an example of the first state that has K through 12 climate standards across all subject areas. And so it's great that they've done that because now we have the success story to look at and to talk to other states and point to their success and their framework, their Office of Climate Change Education and the work that they're doing. In terms of trying to break through that political divide, I guess it would be two strategies for that. One would be thinking about the green skills. So I was just at a convening of people in education, nonprofits, philanthropy, and business, and looking at how there's going to be this massive skills gap, and there's going to be millions of jobs that will be unfilled in the green economy. We need to be thinking about how to get young people excited to go down that path and to want to be a part of the green economy and be a part of this solution. So when you're talking about filling vacant jobs and job creation and economic growth in a community, well, that cuts across political divides. Everybody likes that. The other approach that I would take is, like we spoke about earlier, the climate anxiety and depression that young people are feeling. So if you look at those statistics that I think it's two-thirds of, of young people feel scared and frightened about the future, more than half report that humanity is doomed. 
they agreed with that statement. So these are very scary statistics about our children. And I would like to think that regardless of what your views are, that you would look at that information and you would see that our young people are very concerned and they are hurting. And climate education is a tool to help them process this information. Indeed. And it's not just an overreaction. It's just a valid reaction. I mean, of course, you want to process it. By, but when you have the solutions, then you can feel a little bit at ease and you can work on that area. But it's completely a valid reaction to what we're seeing if there is no action. It is. And, you know, one of the problems and one of the reasons why I believe that we need climate education and we need standardized climate education like that, it's very difficult to get standards passed and to go through the process of what is this going to look like K through 12. But I think it needs to be presented to our young people in a way that is age appropriate, that's fact based, and provides young people with time to process the information that, that they are receiving. Because currently, I, I saw something about this yesterday. You know, where are young people getting information about the climate crisis? The majority of them are getting it from social media. And they agree that social media is not a very reliable source to be getting this information. So it's social media media, it's the most dramatic news bits that, th that they hear. It's information from parents or friends, and it's not always age appropriate. It's not always based in fact, and it tends to be the, the scariest parts of the climate crisis and not looking at some of the successes that we've had. Yeah, and it's not looking at concrete ways that we can tackle each of these problems. And I don't know in the U.S., but in Europe, and they also engage with the U.S., there's Bertrand Picard's uh, Solar Impulse, which has over a thousand solutions, you know, direct solutions. I don't know in America, if there's like a marketplace of solutions which are gathered into one place where you can see, oh, this is solutions for cities. These are solutions on the individual level. And whether it's the various known ways of, you know, renewable energy or more innovative solutions that you might not have heard of. But these a thousand solutions, when I see them, which is a little bit immense, it's like, wow, there's so many people actively working and these are things that you can buy or support or legislate for. I haven't seen that information in the States organized in one place. If it is, I would love to find that because that would help us provide that information to young people. But, you know, there are these bright spots to look for, like you just mentioned. And when you look at the CO2 projections from 2015, what they were in 2015, kind of with business as usual to what they are today, you can see that we're bending the curve. We're not bending it nearly as quickly as we need to. But you look at these companies. We had a presentation from a very large company yesterday in this convening. and They've cut their CO2 emissions by something like 10% over the last five years. I mean, that's really impressive and it's meaningful as a large company. So it's meaningful change. Yeah, it is meaningful change. Although sometimes when I hear figures like that, I wonder how the reduction to CO2 emissions is accounted for. You know, whether it's carbon credits or it's actually streamlining processes and supply chains. So... For me, there's always a little bit of skepticism. That's a great point. And I think that's why climate education is so important, because we need to have people have the skills to look at information like that. And, you know, th this person did go through the, the process and I feel like they were good actors and I was you know impressed by some of the policies that they put in place. But you're right. There are plenty of bad actors out there and there's plenty of greenwashing. So that's still part of climate education, having young people aware that is occurring and to kind of have the critical thinking skills to identify whether it's meaningful change or greenwashing. Yeah. So go through a little bit about that standardization, what considerations you're taking in terms of standardizing across America. Well, I think that 
you know, in my role, it's, it's probably it's more about advocating that we have people asking for these standards. And then just like they did in New Jersey, you create an office of climate education. So when I talked about how it needs to be age appropriate, you know, I'm not going to pretend as a former high school teacher, like I really know how to talk to an eight year old about the climate crisis. I don't know what we should be telling them. I don't know all those details. I mean, I've, I've read materials about it, but I'm not an expert in that. And so we need to start the process through legislation to create these offices and then bring in the experts in curriculum development and standards development. We need to bring in environmental psychologists, child psychologists, and develop these standards that address this issue in a fact-based, age-appropriate way. And you attended COP28 and advocating, of course, for climate education. What were some of those discussions on a global level? At COP28, we focused on encouraging countries to incorporate climate education into their nationally determined commitments as part of the Paris Climate Agreement through the NDCs. The country says, you know, these are the steps. This is what we plan on doing to reach our climate goals. And then by stating that, it demonstrates their commitment. It also potentially opens them up for funding from multilaterals. We hosted a number of panels bringing together experts in the field from all over the world to talk about what climate education looks like in their communities. And you spoke about, you know, generating that excitement in young people so that they don't have that sense of doom and gloom. When we look back to, you know, at the beginning, say, space exploration, where there's so many positive feelings about NASA, I think that going forward, it's very exciting to think about what future cities would look like. We're living in the century of the city, and a lot of that really meaningful reductions to emissions can come from cities. And yet a lot of people don't know what cities will look like in the next 10 years, you know, in terms of reducing emissions and ways management and even the future of work and transport, all these things. What do you envision for the future of our cities? That's a great question. And we do know that cities are going to be a big part of solving the climate crisis. I'll be honest with you that I'm more focused in the realm of education. I just feel like when I look around and I look at cities and I look at the education system and I look at the way things are going today, the consumption, the education model, it's just unsustainable. So I don't know what those changes are going to look like, but I just know that the way things are going right now are unsustainable and we're going to need to see major changes in cities, but we're also going to need to see major changes in our education system in general. And the big thing last year is AI and how will that be affecting the way teachers teach? Obviously, we're seeing it's affecting the way students are learning. I mean, there's a lot of challenges and opportunities there. For sure. Sorry, not an expert on AI, but very interested in the applications of it. I was just at the World Environmental Education Congress in Abu Dhabi, and there were a lot of presentations there about the role of tech technology and green tech in solving the climate crisis, moving us towards net zero. So I think that goes back to my point where, you know, I'm not going to say that when it comes to designing these standards, that I'm the expert in it and I know exactly what all these standards should look like. I'm advocating that we get the legislation to develop the office to bring all those experts together. Let's bring in the experts on AI and green technology and think about how are we going to provide that information to young people today so that they have the skills when they join the workforce to move us towards net zero even faster. Yes, indeed. Of course, there's issues there about whether the AI models have been properly trained and, you know, repetition of biases and all these things. But if there was a properly trained AI that's involved in tackling these problems, we see that there are potential um, wins in terms of reducing the emissions and various things. But I also have reservations because it uses a lot of energy and that's not been properly disclosed. So that's something that we'll have to deal with. But I'm excited to see about ways in which AI can help disseminate the information on a wider level and help with that standardization. 
Yeah, it's a very interesting point. And it's all about looking at the big picture. People in the field looking at what is the potential gain and what are the energy losses for AI. You spoke of success stories and how are you working on an individual level? If you have some stories about individual classrooms or teachers and the feedback that you get from them. Yeah, we've highlighted some educators doing amazing work with climate change education. And on our newsletter, we've had educators of the month where we talk about how they're introducing it to their students. And, you know, I think that the young people want this information would be one of the key takeaways is that they want more information about the climate crisis. And when their teachers provide that to them, they're happy with it. And it, it kind of helps. Again, action is the anecdote to anxiety, right? So providing students with opportunities to engage with this material and to engage in their community. I'm always dealing a lot with university students. So I don't know that K-12 world that you're focusing on a lot, which is, I think, the most important because by the time they're at university, you know, so much time has passed. Well, I guess the young people in your life, you know, what are the, those conversations that you have or when you may be visiting schools, you know, how are you making those personal connections and then you're seeing it down the line and they're making progress? That's a great question. You know, again, back to my teaching experience, it was just a concern that the young people felt that really motivated me to get into this space. I will say, you know, there are a few students who are very involved in environmental movement or the, the climate movement, but most of them, it was very much just a shutting down, let's not talk about it. And I felt like that needed to happen. And I even found myself as a teacher kind of scaring my students with information. Like, you know, there'd be some wildfires or a hurricane and I'd be like, we need to talk about this. And with what I've learned in the last year, I realized that that was not necessarily the right approach because the students are all coming to you already with this climate anxiety, at least in the United States, you know, you don't need to wake them up to it. They're aware. So again, thinking about how we can talk about this in a, a meaningful way. I guess one thing that we could look at is some success stories. You know, I've talked about New Jersey as a success story, but we're seeing other states looking to them and also just through advocacy efforts, increasing climate education in their own state. So New York would be an example. Albany has a bill right now to create climate education standards, to create an office to climate education, much like New Jersey. So that bill is being reviewed right now. We're advocating for that bill to be passed. Colorado has a bill to create a seal of climate literacy for young people to earn. So we're really excited for those efforts. We hope that they all become law. And then later, we hope that we can collect data to see, okay, so in Colorado, if, if young people have this seal of climate literacy, what are they doing in five, 10 years from now? You know, how did that impact them? And you're focusing on areas of educating them, just the specifics like about biodiversity or renewable energy or, you know, possible pathways to jobs, just so I can like envisage what that is. Yeah. So we take a very holistic approach. We think that people should be learning about the climate crisis in all subjects. So if young people are learning about the climate crisis right now, it's most likely being presented to them in the sciences. And I think that's what most people think of when they think of climate education. They think of what are the causes? So learning about CO2 and then what are the solutions? Learning about clean energy. But, you know, we would like to see climate education incorporated into all subjects. And so what that might look like is in an English class, you might read a text about water scarcity and have conversations about climate justice and equity. In a social studies class, when I taught government, you might teach about uh, ways that you can advocate. And so you might look at a group of indigenous people who fought for protecting their land from an oil pipeline. And again, talking about, you know, working in climate equity and justice. 
Yeah, on all levels. Every course would then have a section or a lens to do with climate, the environment, well, the whole multidisciplinary aspect. I, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, it really was such a small part of our education. Yeah, in the United States, if young people are receiving climate education, learning about the climate crisis on average in the U.S., it's, it's two hours a year. So if you think about that, it is not much time at all. And I'm so glad that you also brought up water because that's something that's often neglected. When you think about the climate crisis, we just think, oh, we'll have enough water with our unsustainable farming methods. We can't continue to grow the crops that we do. And so we have to think about that. And perhaps, you know, there's some of these trade-offs. It's kind of unfair to have uh, young people thinking about it. But then, as you say, they can influence their parents to make consumer decisions or maybe nudge their legislators to think about that other crisis that's looming which is shortages of water. Yeah, exactly. And I think that when I think of the issues with water, I think of environmental equity because certain communities, well, that are already being affected more, vulnerable communities are being affected more in many countries. You know, researching how different groups are impacted more. So for example, women will be more impacted by the climate crisis than men. And one of the reasons is that in many communities, women are responsible for certain job tasks like collecting water. And so if you have women, especially if you have young women who are collecting water and they're going further to find that water, that's going to take away from their ability to have education, to be in schools. Until I read about that, you know, I, I didn't understand all the reasons why the climate crisis would impact women more, vulnerable communities more. Like you need that education to have a solid understanding of the issue. I'm Devin Mullins, an American University student interested in sustainable food systems, decolonization, and general justice issues. I wanted to take a second to discuss a few things that Bryce brings up throughout this interview. The first two things I really wanted to highlight are the terms climate equity and climate justice. Bryce uses these terms throughout the interview and coming from the environmental and decolonial background that I do, I think these terms are incredible to hear from someone like Bryce. I just wanted to provide a little bit more of a firm definition and some examples to really emphasize the point that he's making and support what he's talking about whenever he uses those terms. So climate equity, as defined by the USDA, is the goal of recognizing and addressing the unequal burdens made worse by climate change, while ensuring that all people share the benefits of climate protection efforts. So what Bryce is talking about with water justice and who actually doesn't have water and why don't they have water, thinking about things like Flint, Michigan, that could be an example of climate equity because they don't have another way to access their water and human pollution is the reason that that water is contaminated the way it is. Climate equity is really connected to climate justice in its discussion of unequal burdens of climate change. So as defined by the University of California Center for Climate Justice, climate justice recognizes the disproportionate impacts of climate change on low-income communities and communities of color around the world, the people and places least responsible for the problem. In this case, you're looking at places that are disproportionately feeling the impact of climate change, oftentimes because of the structures of racism and colonialism. Once again, you can go back to Flint, Michigan, a majority of the residents who are experiencing problems with water contamination were Black residents. Whenever you look at places like D.C. where I live, the majority of the original Black population of D.C. lives in the south part of D.C. where they've put landfills close to water sources and where there's not enough access to grocery stores. Those decisions are made by people in positions of power. That is what climate justice recognizes. It recognizes that 
people in positions of power have made decisions that specifically put communities of color and low-income communities at a disadvantage when it comes to feeling the impacts of climate change, regardless of the fact that those people have not usually contributed the amount that those people in power have contributed. So very important things to recognize, and Bryce is doing a fantastic job by bringing those terms up both on this podcast and in the Earth Day organization at large. The other thing I want to talk about is education. Bryce is an educator, so his emphasis on how people of every age need to be involved with learning and about the environment in every area of education really resonated with me. And to this, I have got to say, you need to check out Paulo Freire. Freire was a Brazilian educator and advocate for critical pedagogy. For Freire, what this meant is a focus on the way the student is learning in a way that nobody really does even today. His well-known book is called Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and Friere outlines the idea of banking education, in which knowledge is bestowed like a gift from those who know all to those who know nothing. That is how he describes this. And this position assumes that the students don't know anything. They are vessels, empty vessels, for information. It assumes that they don't come in with climate anxiety and with an understanding of the world built from their own perspective. It poses the teacher as the opposite of the student. Now, what Freire suggests instead is problem-posing education. In this system, he says that the students, no longer docile listeners, are now critical co-investigators in dialogue with the teacher. The teacher presents the material to the students for their consideration and reconsiders her earlier considerations as the students express their own. It's beautiful. The teacher and the students learn from each other. They add to the conversation equally. And while the teacher may have more education and experience in the world with age, maybe those students come from a place that the teacher has never heard of and they've never known these perspectives. And the other students haven't heard of those things either. And so they get to come together and collaborate and learn together. It is a beautiful community of knowledge. The goal is not to educate so people know what you know. The goal is to create new knowledge and to explore questions and community. It is a explicitly liberatory view of education. It truly is something that I hold very closely to my heart. And if you're interested in this critical pedagogy, I highly recommend reading at least chapter two of Paolo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And if you're really into it, you could even read the entire book. Um, now, back to the interview. Yes, completely. And there are some ingenious solutions where you're talking about when there aren't pipelines about, you know, drawing water out of the air through these hydrosolar panels and things like that. Again, it becomes a bit costly and also with desalination. But I mean, there are things we definitely do have to consider. And so what are you excited about in terms of your achievements or, you know, new projects rolling out going towards the future? I'm really excited that it, it seems like there's a momentum growing for climate education. Again, I, you know, I, five years ago, I was in the classroom. But when I talked to people who were in this space five years ago, it was very much like they were calling for climate education and it seemed like no one was listening, not many people were talking about it. The conversation is definitely growing. And again, you have states, I keep talking about New Jersey, but you have other states that they might not have K through 12 standards integrated in all subjects. But if you look at states like Washington, California, they have programs to bring climate education to teachers and to students. So there are these successes now, and it feels like the movement is growing. If New York passes their bill, Virginia has a bill. I don't know if that's likely to pass and be signed, but they have a bill introduced. 
And so we're hoping that eventually, you know, we've reached this critical mass of states that have climate education. And if we can then prove that it is successful in filling those jobs that, that are not going to be filled, that the green skills that people need to fill the, the skills gap, then other states might start looking around and saying, hey, we, we need to introduce this. Everyone around us is doing it and it's very successful to them. It's helping address the climate anxiety that young people are feeling and it has economic benefits. That's a win. And we just see this movement growing. Yeah. And has the Inflation Reduction Act, has that helped advance things? How does that work in tandem with that? That's a good question. The Inflation Reduction Act, unfortunately, didn't designate money for education specifically. So climate education, you know, it's not would not be a part of that. However, it did designate a lot of money for workforce training. And so not necessarily the climate education and green skills that we would like to see K through 12, but it has developed a lot of opportunities more broadly regarding educating the community about the causes and solutions of the climate crisis. Indeed. And when you speak about rolling out on a greater level, I, I'm always curious about you know the possibility of public-private partnerships. We don't want the over-corporatization of the educational market, but everything has become a market now. And what are your reflections on perhaps having some of those public-private partnerships that would empower in-depth climate education? Yeah, that's one of our main initiatives, actually, is having corporations call for climate education, because we know that the corporations are are very powerful and that they know what they need today, and what they're going to need tomorrow. So we believe that if corporations are calling for climate education, that the people and the government will hopefully listen to them. If we think about, you know, people in sustainability, green jobs, what's happening in a lot of corporations is they are retraining people who are already in their company because they don't necessarily have the green skills that, that are needed. So it's beneficial for the companies to say, well, let's incorporate this into our education system so that we have the employees that we're going to need in the future. So I think that bringing business in is such an important part of this and is one of our key strategies. Indeed. And also, you know, young people, of course, that's their marketplace as well. So they have to understand their concerns because, I mean, it is as if people, anyone young or old experiencing that climate anxiety doesn't want to be supporting businesses who are not good actors. For sure. Yeah. Finding ways for people to be able to digest that information, know who's a good actor. You talk about climate literacy and about educating people on their rights as consumers to nudge the policy, to nudge companies in the right direction. And it seems bound up in that there's an element of economic literacy that we actually also don't have at the basic K through 12 level where people are just aren't taught to learn to read the fine print and to understand their role in these institutions and uh, corporations. Yeah, I definitely, I, I agree with that. And as a former economics teacher, I think that's such a, a key part, right? The thing about economics is you always say there's no such thing as a free lunch. So trying to understand, you know, what these motivations are and chasing down these policies so that when a company says that they're doing X, Y, and Z for the climate, you take it to that next level where you're applying that critical thinking and saying, okay, what really is the the effect? Yeah, we need better effective communication. I think there's really a tendency to concentrate excessively on climate data, which is, of course, crucial. But if it was just a question of presenting people with evidence and facts, we wouldn't be in a climate emergency. As you know, we humans are storied beings. This is how we make sense of our lives and the world we're in. And so we need to come up with a more compelling story about humanness and human aspects 
aspiration that I believe allows us not only to exist and survive, but to change our behavior and flourish. So as you reflect on the teachers in your own life who have influenced you, they're not just teachers, they're collaborators or those who just set you on this path and who you learned an immense amount from, what did they pass on? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess for me, schools have always been a place of community. I, I moved a lot growing up throughout the United States, grew up in California, lived in Wisconsin and Michigan. So very different places, very far away. And I found that school was always a safe place for me. And it had this community and was a constant in my life. So even though going from California to Michigan, you know, the school systems were still very similar in their structure and teachers generally care about the young people in their classes. So I guess from that, I learned that schools are just such a critical part for developing community and supporting young people. And you know, it's more than just teaching this lesson and, and giving a quiz on it. It's about growing the community and addressing the, the concerns that people have in the community. And, and part of your advocacy, we're doing this for the planet, we're doing this for people. So what are your reflections on beauty and wonder of the natural world, your experiences, talking about growing up and living in California and different areas that help inspire you on your journey? Yeah, I definitely, I mean, like many people, I, I enjoy being out in nature I enjoy hiking, kayaking, paddleboarding. One thing that, you know, I've always had the privilege of and now that I can control where I live, one thing that I will always do is be near water. And I, you know, whether that's the ocean or a lake or a bay, I feel like I need that connection. And so for me, you know, when I think of our plastics campaign, I think about the effect that that's having on our waterways and the ocean by 2050, that there's going to be more plastic mass in the ocean than, than fish. And I just find that to be heartbreaking, to be honest. And, you know, it is these individual connections when you are, you're kayaking in your local lake and you see a plastic cup floating in it. And, you know, it makes you think about how we need to do something about this and we, we need to be educating people so that we can make these changes. Indeed. And not to think about our oceans on a functional level, but of course they, you know, absorb so much heat of this planet. And once that breaks down, I mean, we're, I know we're not going to talk about the gloom and gloom, but we're headed towards that two degree world. So we have to look after our oceans, if only for our self-interest. For sure. Yeah. And then, I mean, there's beautiful spaces to be. So you can think about it in the, you know, we need to stay below 1.5. And then you can also think about the beautiful places that you've gone or maybe you've had family vacations and you've enjoyed these spaces and just how this personal connection that we feel to nature. So in closing, as you think about the future, of course, education, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think I would like young people to develop a or increase their love of nature. I do when I, you know, I mentioned that I feel like the current education system is unsustainable. And I guess what I mean by that is if you think about the average U.S. teenager is spending something like nine hours on screens and then, you know, they're in school and they're on their computers. I feel like there's maybe a, there's a little bit of a, and there's research to support this, a disconnect between younger generations and nature. They're spending less time in nature. And we know that spending time in nature is very helpful for mental health, even 15 minutes in a nature area is good for your mental health a, a day. And I feel like we need to find ways to support that, to get people in nature, because we want people to understand the science behind the climate crisis and the solutions. But I think we need a reminder of what are we fighting for? 
right? We need young people out in nature, just enjoying themselves, whether it's hiking or kayaking. I recently went to an aquarium and I'm looking at all these beautiful species. This is what we're doing it for. So you need to, to instill that desire to save the planet, to save our oceans, to save the biodiversity that, that we have. Indeed, we're living in this kind of miracle. And if we just slow down and appreciate that, I think that we could hold on to it. We don't have to think about going to colonize another dead planet, <laughs> but we have this miracle here on Earth. So thank you, Bryce Kuhn, for all that you and Earth Day do to protect our planet, safeguard our future, educate us about planetary health, and show us pathways to sustainability so that collectively we can restore our Earth and create a better tomorrow. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much for having me. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Sophie Garnier and Devin Mullins. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>